break, got nothing to lose. Living life with nothing to prove. I'm gonna be a better version of me. What's going on, folks? It's your boy, Dr. Sean Thomas, here again for episode 11 of the Be More Today show. Episode 11. Oh, my goodness. We're still in the building. We're still doing our thing. It's a great day. The sun is out. It's springtime, and we're still here rocking out. My co-host for today is none other than my music producer, Terrence Sparrow. Terrence, what's going on? Man, everything is good. I got to say this. I got to say this real quick. Doing this podcast, I've gotten so much personally from it. So much oh, yeah. wisdom, so many tips. It's really cool. Um, I, I don't know. It's just it's just a really great thing. I'm glad I'm glad you came up with the idea to do it. I'm appreciative of you just being here with me, rocking out. And we've had so many guests on the show. We've had so many awesome people that we've met and they share their stories. And today is no different. Uh, before we get to that, though, I have my quotation for today is very, very simple as always. And it's from Wilma Rudolph. And it says, never underestimate the power of dreams and the influence of the human spirit. We are all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lives within each of us. You know, last night I watched the graduation uh, program that was on multiple channels that was sponsored by LeBron James and uh, Obama was on there and all these different artists. And you know what, Terrence? I, I can't even imagine not finishing school personally. You know, I think of all, all the students who are out there from high school to college, grad school, who literally just had their, their end of their years just truncated abruptly and the resilience that i've seen uh, on social media on facebook on online uh kids coming together and literally learning uh virtually coming together and still connecting with their classmates you know missing prom is huge missing graduations are big but um watching that thing last night and and i kudos to lebron and everyone else was a, was a part of it clearly but just that that whole thing by itself was inspiring um it just showed various uh students around the world who have taken this COVID-19 experience and changed it for a positive in their lives. And, you know, I, I give kudos to everybody who is graduating during this time. Congratulations to all you guys. It's really an amazing time, a crazy time, but also an amazing time uh, to be alive and to graduate. But the human spirit literally is, is so resilient. And to, to see so much um, prosperity come out of this, so, so much uh, heartfelt um, greatness still come out of this thing, I'm, I'm pretty certain that, this class is going to do great things for our, for our community, for our countries, for our nation, because they've just been through so much already. And uh, to go through all that and still come out on top, still smiling, it's, it's a great thing to see. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Terrence? Um, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I've seen the, uh, the graduations or even people that I know um, post online that they graduated with a 4.0 and they still moved forward. And, you know, the... I've even seen a drive-by graduation, like set, like people handing gifts in a car with masks on. And so it's just, it's real cool to see the creativity come out of it all. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I agree with you. Yeah, it's amazing. Congrats to the class of 2020 and anyone who's graduated in that realm, whether it's kindergarten to grad school, uh, we salute you. We salute you. Yes. Our guest for today, uh, guys, I'm, I'm super excited. I, we might be here all night. I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, his name is Todd Capistassi. He is a seven-time Emmy Award-winning director, producer, and editor. In 2016, he wrote and directed the documentary on the Chicago Cubs, Confessions of a Cubs fan for Fox. And a year later, Making Tar Wars, a documentary on the story of George Brett's pin-tarred bat. 
In 2018, Kapasasi premiered his short film, Run, at the Tribeca Film Festival, the story of Robert Young, an ultra-marathon runner, attempting to set a record by running across the United States amid allegations of fraud. Most recently, he wrote and directed the ESPN 30 for 30, Dennis Rodman, for better, for worse. Todd began his career at ESPN, where he produced for several shows, including SportsCenter, NBC Countdown, College Football, Game Day. A Cleveland native of Lake County, Ohio, Perry High School, and a graduate of Brown University, you know, in 2016, he currently resides in Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pets included, welcome to the show, the Be More Today show, my friend, Todd Kapastasi. Todd, what's going on? What's up, John? Man. Good to be here. I am so happy to have you on the show. I'm so happy to have you on the show. I know that, uh, you know, we, we kind of reconnected randomly. Um, so I was running, uh, clearly I, I do marathons. Well, not now because there's no races happening. But um, a friend of mine had recommended that I watch the short film run. And I'm watching this because I'm about to go to L.A. to run the L.A. marathon. I'm watching this and I'm like, wait a minute. I know that voice. <laughs> and then I see this space. And I'm like, that's Todd. And I haven't, I haven't really talked to you in the longest time. You know, we were in school together, clearly. Um, Todd and I were, were teammates at Brown. Uh, I was a senior. He was a freshman. And we were both on, jump, on a jump squad. So he did high jump. And he was a good, you were a good high jumper, dude. You did 6'4 at Heps. And yeah, you, know, yeah. you held your ground. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we didn't really connect for a long time. And then literally, I, I, I see everything on, on this, this documentary because I'm clearly running and I watch this thing and I see you and I reach out to you automatically and I say, congratulations, this is awesome. And we connected and then we actually met in LA um, before the LA Marathon and had lunch and it was, it was great. So I really appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, of course. It's, what's interesting is when I was um, thinking about this today, it's just funny how, you know, you were, I was 18 probably when I met you and you were, you know, 21 because you were a senior when I was a freshman at Brown. And all these years later, I mean, I'm 36 now, I still sort of see you as this sort of like older, you know, wiser, sort of have your life figured out. I'm still this young guy and I'm just so happy to be on this podcast. It's just weird how things don't change, you know, like I, even all these years later, I still see you as the like Captain Sean um, and I'm just like the teammate who's trying to like make Sean happy, but um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so happy to be here and to chat with you. I'm glad we got to reconnect when you were in the marathon. Yeah, man, I really appreciate it. And clearly you're not the little boy anymore. You are doing great, <laughs> great, great things. Uh, so let's just get into it. What's your, what's your current situation? We asked everybody when to come on the show, what's going on with you with COVID-19 and where are you at right now? You know, what's your current situation? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm here in Los Angeles. Um, I'm, yeah, we've been pretty, I mean, LA is pretty, pretty locked down. So I would say I'm here with my wife, obviously in our place. And we've been probably now for two and a half months, I guess, really, really, really careful about where we go and who we see. And, you know, obviously everyone's has their new normal and ours is just a lot of working from home and staying in the house and, uh, ordering groceries and, um, you know, it's been hard, but obviously, you know, we're lucky we're in LA, there's sun, there's sun outside. We go outside every day and get sun. And, um, you know, for me, um, in my job, what I lucked out on is I'm editing an, a documentary right now. So, you know, my life isn't all that much different. Unfortunately, as all editors, you know, directors know, a lot of time is spent in dark rooms staring at a TV screen for hours and hours and hours. And that hasn't really changed 
much um, over the quarantine. So um, yeah, I'm actually editing a uh, golf channel documentary right now from home myself because I couldn't edit with a, with an editor um, just because of the complications from COVID. So I took over sort of the editing responsibilities and um, that's what I'm doing in, uh, in LA right now. Cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Still working, still grinding. Yep. <laughs> um, so, you know, we read your bio, you, you've done so many things. Um, we'd like to give our listeners a glimpse of, you know, how you got started. I know you were at Brown. Um, if you can just give me like the, the brief timeline of what you majored at at Brown and how that transferred to you being uh, enrolled or employed by ESPN and Fox and, and everyone else. Yeah, I mean, my path was kind of interesting and I think it speaks to you know, unfortunately, who, well, I shouldn't say this, unfortunately, who I am, but I think my personality is such that, you know, when I enrolled at Brown, I always wanted, I always had an interest in filmmaking and television, film, um, wanted to potentially do documentary, always wanted to make a narrative film at some point. I had these dreams when I was, you know, in high school and then entering college, but the practical Todd kind of said, Hey, you should get a, a, a good general education, learn how to learn how to write, learn how to think critically. So I ended up majoring in political science and history, which, you know, I loved my education at Brown. And I tried when I was at Brown to take, you know, I took a, a filmmaking course, I tried to take a class at RISD. Um, so all, all the while I was navigating Brown, I was trying to find, you know, ways to satiate my, my sort of want and need to, to get into filmmaking eventually. But I just never really committed totally i guess to like this is my dream i'm, I'm gonna be a filmmaker i'm you know gonna do everything i can to make films on campus and then i'm gonna apply to grad school to become a filmmaker that just like wasn't me um i wanted to get a good education and something that i was really interested in and then try to figure it out kind of afterward um so when i graduated before i graduated i actually had a connection to at ESPN, they had, which is in Bristol, which is fairly close by to Providence, um, they have a internship program for new new graduates. So I, I interviewed for that probably a couple months before we graduated. Um, and the interview went well, but at ESPN, you know, there are thousands of applicants. So I remember the interview, after the interview, getting a call and saying, you know, we really liked you, but obviously we have a huge backlog of, of you know, interns and new graduates who want to get into this program. Um, so you're kind of far down on the list, so it may take a couple months. So at that point, I was also applying to grad schools and got into a few. Um, and so I had to make this decision, do I go to grad school, which I was going to major in, you know, communications, or um, I think I got into the journalism program at USC. Um, so I was basically deciding between grad school and taking this sort of really, really low paid internship that I was told I would probably get, but I didn't really know. Um, and I just decided to do that and wait on that. So I spent the summer at Brown, which was actually kind of nerve wracking because I didn't have a job and, you know, I had paid all this money for this education and, you know, I, you know, I, I felt sort of not a, obviously as a failure at that point, but I sort of felt worried that, you know, everyone wants to in May before they graduate have a good job that they go off to. That wasn't me at that point. So I stayed at Brown. I worked. I did another internship. I was just trying to make money. And then I think in September, probably, I got the call saying that I had been accepted into this, this internship program at ESPN. So um, I moved to uh, Connecticut and it's a, like, it was a production assistant training program. So um, again, it's just funny to think back of, I mean, they paid you nothing. You worked from 
the hours were usually five at night to two in the morning because that's when all the, the sporting events were going on. And I would sit in this really large room and essentially log um, sporting events that then I would turn into sort of highlights. So you'd watch a full game, you'd watch a Knicks Cavs game. Um, Cavs would obviously win. And then I would cut the, uh, <laughs> I would, uh, I would cut the highlight for that and, you know, hand it off to Stuart Scott in the newsroom. And then he'd read my highlight on, but for you know the first year or so that was kind of like the start of my, my ESPN career okay incredible yeah yeah um so I have a question my my question here is um when did you realize you wanted to be a director and a producer but before you answer that I just want you to share with the audience the difference between a director and a producer, because I don't know if everybody understands that. Yeah, I mean, it's a little complicated because I think it varies a lot um, across industries. What's interesting about sports television is that, you know, when I was at ESPN, everyone who basically did the role of a director, if you were like, they call it a feature producer um, at ESPN, where you'd go out and interview a bunch of people. You were basically a documentary filmmaker who would come back with these pieces, um, but they called us feature producers because a producer in the sort of traditional sense is someone who brings everything together, right? They, they set up the, they, they make all the calls and they hire a film crew and they're, they're doing all the travel and they're figuring out the content and, you know, they're kind of bringing all the pieces together. Um, but that's also directing. So in sports TV, basically, they would always call a director a producer. Um, like in my world, when I was doing studio production, a director was someone who was like in the studio, like cutting cameras, which is not what we think about when we think about like Martin Scorsese, who's a filmmaker and a director. But in sports TV, the director is like in the control room, kind of cutting the, the cameras for the show. So in the sense that you're probably talking about, a director is more someone whose vision is executed via, you know, shots, via um, writing, um, the sort of general aesthetic of what you want the film to look like, um, the content, obviously, who you interview and what questions you ask, that would be a director. And then the producer is more someone who's behind the scenes setting all that stuff up. So like on the Dennis Rodman 30 for 30, I was obviously the director, but then a really good friend of mine, his name's Matt Schleff, who worked for the production company, he was kind of the main producer. So a lot of his jobs, our jobs obviously overlap a lot, but a lot of what he did was, you know, oh, I want, I want to shoot Phil Jackson in this hotel room. Like, how do we make that happen? And he would make that happen. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, I, you know, I really want an animation for this part where Dennis is, we're talking about Dennis being this rebounding savant and he would you know give me a list of 10 animators who are like really good at doing that style that I wanted so the producer is usually more organizing setting up executing and the director is kind of overseeing this overall aesthetic vision for for the piece but again that that sort of varies across um industries and in sports tv it's a little wonky where everyone kind of is just called the producer even if you're more of a creative director right so was there ever a passion to say i want to be a director and a producer or just it just it just flowed into wherever the jobs came yeah i mean i think i i i wanted to be a director and um i think that's why too at espn at a certain point you can choose to be a studio producer which is you know, and I did a lot of that where I worked on NBA Countdown with like Magic Johnson and Stuart Scott and um, Michael Wilbon. They were the, the talent when I worked on that show. Um, 
And that's one path where I could have produced that show, which would have been producing, sitting in the chair in the control room and, and, and sort of making that show. But I chose to sort of go in more of the feature producing direction, which is more directing, um, where I wanted to tell human interest stories and go out into the field and shoot interviews and come back and put all that together. Um, so I'd say probably three years into my career at ESPN, I figured out that you know the studio producing stuff wasn't really what I wanted to do. And the more kind of in the field, directing, documentary, filmmaking is like what I was good at and what I really wanted to do. So I think that happened probably in you know, 2008, 2009. Nice. Now, let me ask this. You've had a lot of success. Um, what is the secret to your success? <laughs> or what would you say is the secret? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a hard question. I mean, a lot of it's luck and a lot of it's, I mean, at ESPN, it, it's funny because it's such a large, you know, they call it the mothership and it is because there's so many people who work there. There's, you know, it's hard to get promoted. It's hard to, you know, I wanted to do a certain thing there, which was feature producing. And then eventually I wanted to direct a 30 for 30 and that it took a while, you know, it took, I, I made no money and I, and I didn't have a lot of responsibility for years there. And it's, it's, it's a long grind and it's kind of what I was talking about too, with my, my um, experience at Brown, where I didn't show up at Brown and say, I want to be a filmmaker and go out into Providence and start making films. I sort of took this slow, quiet route um, and just worked really, really hard at that and built good relationships. And I think, that's what I did at ESPN too. I got there and I didn't blow the doors down and say, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not, I'm not doing the studio show stuff. I'm not doing highlights. I'm, I'm going to direct it 30 for 30. Like I, I didn't do that. I think I, I played the game for a long time and I learned television. I learned sports TV. Um, and again, I built good relationships there and I showed that I was a really, really passionate, um, you know, competent worker there. Um, so in terms of, you know, a key success, I would just say that it's, it's staying steady and working really, really hard and not trying to sort of, you know, jump five steps because, you know, your passion, you know, you know, leads you to do that. Mm -hmm. Now I, that, that it makes sense, especially the two keys that I just got from that was building relationships and working really hard. And like you said, a lot of people do want to, want to jump that step, um, yeah, and I think, you know, hard, it's it's cliche to say uh, uh, hard work solves everything. It doesn't. Sometimes you get unlucky and hard work doesn't always pay off, unfortunately. But, you know, you, you have to work hard to at least give yourself the shot for, for luck to happen in, you know, one way or the other. Um, and, and, yeah, building relationships. I think, like, at ESPN, there were so many people there, and there were volatile people, and there were people who were – you know, way more motivated than maybe the other. There are so many different people mixed up into this, you know, 10,000 person company in the middle of nowhere in Connecticut that, you know, you had to sort of, I think, be the steadier hard worker to really stand out. And so that, that kind of worked for me there. Okay. Now, what do you feel the keys are to the filmmaking industry moving forward post pandemic? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky. I think everyone's trying to figure out what their industry is going to look like in, in six months or a year. And I don't necessarily have a guess for that. I know now, you know, people are figuring out how to do shoots, you know, with social distancing. Actually, the producer I was talking about, 
um, who worked on Rodman with me, was just telling me he's doing a shoot this week where the DP is setting up the camera in this house for this interview with, I think it's with LaMelo Ball. Um, and one DP is going to do this where there would be a crew of 10 to 15 people doing it. So it's one guy, he's going to the house, setting up, wiping everything down. He has a way to remotely look at what he set up wow. in the parking lot. So then he'll leave the room and then the, the interview subject will come in and they'll sort of execute the interview that way with Zoom and everyone's on you know Zoom doing the interview. So it's, you know, things are going to change, you know, in terms of that kind of thing. But I would guess that the hope is, you know, once we get a vaccine and, and you know, we can start living life a little more normally that the film industry won't change um, hugely. And, and, you know, television too, sports television has been fairly good adapting to, you know, back in the day we were all watching cable and obviously that's not the case now. No one's really watching cable and no one's watching highlight shows anymore. We used to watch sports center, but now we watch first take. We want to see people debating and Mm -hmm. everything's streamed and, and shorter. And I think, we always have to adapt to changing technology and changing circumstances. And I think the film and TV industry has been pretty good at doing that. So, you know, it's hard to know how things are going to change in terms of um, how we produce things um, and how you go out and shoot stuff. But my hope is that eventually it'll get back to normal. So Todd, we are introducing a segment called Community Over, Over Competition. It's actually our hashtag that we've been putting uh, for every show. We're really about bringing people together who are like-minded. Um, Be More Today is really about uh, uplifting communities and showcasing what someone else knows and someone else wants to get there, they can kind of come there together because um, knowledge is power, right? So uh, we have a uh, Be More Today supporter on the show today. Her name is Vanessa Blake. She is a photographer and a new filmmaker, as well as a lifelong Nick fan. Uh, and she has a couple of questions for you at this time. Vanessa, welcome to the Be More Today show. Hey, thank you for having me. So I'm just going to jump right in, Todd. Um, I watched your documentary run, and it was amazing. And I was wondering if you could tell the audience what goes into making a documentary because we sort of sit back and we just as viewers and watch it, but we don't really understand what goes into it. And you did a lot in 20 minutes. It was very compelling. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think in general, <laughs> well, it's funny you ask this question because I oftentimes sit back, you know, with when something I do premieres on TV and I sit and watch it with my wife. And I always say like, wow, like, how the hell did this take 14 months or how the hell did this take all this blood, sweat and tears? It seems so simple. And and it, it, it is, and it's not rocket science, but you know, you're right. There's just so much that goes into putting together even something that's 20 minutes long. But you know, for the Robert Young run thing, I think that was a tricky one because it was a documentary essentially where I found an article, a pretty obscure article. um, I think on a British um, in a British newspaper about this guy who was attempting to run across the country um, on foot um, and break the sort of world record for doing it. But he also had all this trauma in his life. It was just really interesting on a lot of levels and really layered. Um, and so, you know, what goes into starting that is obviously reaching out to the, to the subject and, and making sure he wants to do it, which that's a big step for me. And I think that's one of the things I'm pretty good at in, in this world is, you know, connecting with people and creating a relationship where the subject feels comfortable. Um, you know, cause you have to, I did a, a piece on 
you know, I've done pieces on death where there's death in the family and people don't want to talk about these things, but they're inspiring stories in a lot of ways. So it's hard in a way you have to convince someone that you're the right person to tell their story. And that can be hard. Um, but that's, that's always part of it is reaching out to the subject and sort of explaining your vision for it and why you're the right person to tell their story. And once you get past that, um, then it just becomes the logistical game of what you want to shoot, who you want to interview and what this sort of story you want to tell is, and especially the aesthetic you want. I mean, I think that's for me, I don't just say, okay, there's, there's a story on this runner and I'm just going to like go and shoot it. I'm going to interview him and see what happens and then come back and put it all together. I think that's a, like a pretty bad way to do documentary. And I think you have to have a vision for the story you want to tell ahead of time. Of course, that's going to change a lot, but I think you want to have a creative vision and then sort of your editorial vision for how the story is going to unfold. Um, so for the Robert Young thing, it, it hit a little snag because <laughs> we, we end up shooting him for, you know, a week we interview him before he leaves to do this marathon. Um, and then during the filming, all these allegations that he cheated and was riding on his RV across the country started. So we had obviously just our, our kind of storytelling. So I became sort of a character in this, this thing where I was almost a reporter because I was there when all this cheating started to happen. And I had really intimate, um, relationships with these people because I spent a lot of time with them, convinced them to do it, um, was kind of on their side, like the rah-rah of like weekend. I felt like I was part of the crew a little bit because it was it was this very inspirational running across the country thing that I wanted to see happen, not only for these guys that I got to know, but for the piece, it would obviously would have made this ESPN kind of documentary a lot better um, if they achieved it. But then there's, like I said, there was these cheating allegations and I had to sort of take a step back and, and kind of investigate that on my own. Um, so, I mean, that's a great example of just like having a vision for what you wanted. I, when I pitched that piece, I said, this is going to be a piece where if this guy does this, it's going to be this massively inspirational story, pretty straightforward. It's going to be following kind of this travel log of following him across the country. And then all of a sudden when I'm in Kansas and people are saying that he's riding in the RV while I'm filming, um, obviously that had to change a lot. So, but that's, that's part of the fun of doing documentaries. You never know what's going to happen. So, um, but yeah, and, and just speaking more broadly too, about doing documentary. And I think with the, the Rodman thing was a little more straightforward. Um, the Rodman 30 for 30, where, you know, you, the first thing you do is you put a list of every single person you want to interview. And for us, that was, you know, a hundred people probably. And we ended up interviewing probably close to 50. Um, and then what important points of Dennis's story do you really want to focus on? Um, and again, I think the creative vision for how you want to engage the viewer, because we did some, you know, a little bit off the wall things in the Rodman documentary to keep people guessing and to kind of speak to who he is. We, we didn't feel like we could just do a straightforward Dennis Rodman documentary. We wanted it to be a little, a little oddball and off the wall and always keep you guessing at every corner. Um, so that's a big part of it too, is just, is getting the content, but then figuring out how to organize it in a way that maybe people haven't seen before, or that's interesting, or that's different, or, um, you know, really speaks to who the, the subject is that you're, you're trying to cover. So as a follow-up, um, in terms of, um, the vision for the documentary, because you had to pivot with run, um, do you know how you want the edit, what the edit to look like? Because you know, that's 
also part of the creative process. Um, and in the beginning, you may want it to look one way, but then in, when you get back to the editing room, you see you may have a different um, take on it in terms of the footage once you start looking at it and listening to the interviews. Yeah, I mean, the edit process is, is massively important because, I mean, you hear stories too in documentary, even, you know, documentaries that have been nominated for Academy Awards. I've heard stories where a director will go in with an editor, they'll cut the entire documentary, watch it, feel like it's just not right, and literally just scrap what they did and start over. Um, and that's, that's happened before too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you have... While you're shooting these things, while you're interviewing, every single interview, even if you do 50, uh, when I'm listening to answers, I'm saying, oh, my God, you know, Phil Jackson just said this. That has to be in, and that's going to be a two-minute thing in the piece, hopefully. And so you, you have all these things jumbled in your head like that, and you go back to the edit room, and you take those out. And you see if it all kind of fits in together, and sometimes it doesn't, and you have to adjust that. But, you know, the edit process, we edited Rodman for – eight months maybe. I mean, it's, it's, it's months of sitting and trying to figure out how, how all these little pieces fit together because it, 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 again, you watch it and you're like, this is easy. It's a, it's a pretty clear, straightforward story. When you interview so many people, and you have so many ways to go, especially with someone like Robin, whose life was, you know, multifaceted and spanned 30 interesting years. There's just a lot of stuff to cover and, and putting that all together in a way that's easily digestible and interesting to people and gets at the, the really important issues. Like for Dennis, it was like the LGBTQ stuff was really interesting to me and um, his relationship with his mother and his relationship with his kids and his sort of need for love, like all that stuff was so important and getting at that correctly. Um, it, that all does come together in the edit. So um edit process is extremely important and really long and arduous a lot of times. Yeah. I think a lot of us don't really understand that. Um, so when you are looking for a new project, what do you consider and what makes you finally say, okay, I'm going to pursue this? Yeah, I think for me, I, it's weird saying this because I am a big sports fan. I mean, I'm, I'm from Cleveland. I'm a huge Cleveland sport. I love the Browns and the Cavs and the Indians. And I, I enjoy and watch sports. I think going to ESPN though, I realized that I was a little different in that I'm not a die. I, I don't want to sit at a bar and talk about the Knicks for instance, for, and how bad the Knicks are for, for six. Hours. <laughs> no. um, but you know, I'm a, I'm a sports fan because I like stories is, is I guess what I'm getting at. I love the human interest side of, of sports, um, the energy and emotion that comes out of sports and these incredible stories. So for me being in sports, I kind of tend to shy away from, Oh, this, this event happened or, Oh, this team was really good in the eighties. Like the Celtic, like it wouldn't be that interesting for me to do a, you know, a Celtics in the eighties documentary, but it would be interesting to focus on one of those players maybe had a really really interesting you know evolution through his career um and to focus on him and his story so i guess to answer your question i look for really really interesting human stories i guess um and that's sort of a, a really basic i guess kind of the first check on a checklist when i'm looking at a story is is this individual story really interesting is it is it multifaceted is it um, you know, does it twist and turn a lot? Um, and also I think now later in my career, 
you start to you start to really think about like what a documentarian is and the importance of it. Cause I think we all struggle probably with, you know, the impact of our jobs. You know, not everyone can have a job that changes the world. And I don't think that being a documentary filmmaker necessarily changes the world, but how can what I do kind of affect the world in a positive way? And I think doing stories on really big, important people, leaving that behind so someone can come along and, and, and understand who that person was. I do think that's somewhat important. Or maybe that's just how I sleep at night and, and tell myself my job is somewhat important. But I, but I do think that, you know, if, if at some point I do, you know, if, you, if, you, if I did a big doc on Barack Obama and it becomes the definitive Barack Obama documentary and that gets left behind for 20 years, that, I mean, that's amazing. That's, that would make me so proud, and, and that's an important – and even Dennis Rodman, to a certain extent. I mean, he's a really interesting athlete who, um, who made an impact in sports and in this world in a really unique way. And the fact that I now put something out there that's two hours long that a lot of people can see to understand Dennis Rodman, that's, that's satisfying. So I think, you know, that's also a consideration now choosing projects is what – you know, who is worthy of sort of – you know, spending two years of my life trying to understand the life that they lived and, and putting that out there for people. Sure. Um, I also wanted to know if you could explain what it means. You see in the credits a lot um, who wrote and who directed the documentary, but most people wouldn't think about that aspect, like what it means to write a documentary beyond narration or the voiceover script. What is it? What does that actually mean? Yeah, I mean, Again, it can work in a few ways. And what's interesting to me and what's interesting about your question, and I think what you're getting at is, you know, there are documentaries, I think like the Muhammad Ali documentary on HBO, which I don't know if you guys saw, but this is a good example. of I don't think it had, there wasn't narration, but they probably had multiple writers. They had multiple story producers. So just because you're not physically writing something doesn't mean that you know, that skill isn't needed on a documentary. So for instance, if in Muhammad Ali, they interviewed a hundred people, it's kind of what I was getting at earlier. You have all these interviews and you have these little pieces of the story everywhere, like putting them together in the perfect order uh, so that it's compelling and that it makes sense. That's the job of a writer in a lot of ways. They're not physically writing the interviews and what the people said, but they're taking all of these little bits and organizing them in a way that a writer would. So, um, you know, for me and like Rodman and some of the other things that I've done, you know, I've written the narration and that's just basically taking all these interviews that I have arranged in a certain way and then bridging them with, with, you know, narration. So in, in Rodman's example, it was Jamie Foxx. So we were writing narration for Jamie Foxx and some of that stuff was more meant to lighten the mood or, you know, break the fourth wall and be tongue in cheek. So we had a style with that narration, but I think just in general in documentary, you know, you don't have to write a word to sort of need the writing skill because a lot of it's organization and it's taking what's written on a page that was said by a subject and arranging it correctly. Um, and just, I'm sorry, I have one more question. Um, in Run, you were the narrator. You wound up being the narrator. But Jamie Foxx, like you mentioned, he was the narrator for the Rodman um, documentary. Do you know in advance who you want whose voice you want to be the narrator on your documentaries? Yeah. 
uh, it, you know, for Rodman, it was, there's so much to do in a documentary that sometimes like who narrates gets, gets lost until the end. And then, you know, you're two months before it airs. And you're like, Oh, we have to have some, someone has to read this thing. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's about who's the right tone for it. You know, for Jamie Foxx, it's, it was Jamie Foxx and he was such a big name and he was interested in doing it because I think he had um, a relationship with Dennis at some point. Um, they were friends kind of back in the day and he always loved Dennis's story. So I think he, we, he might've even reached out in some way or an agent of his, but um, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, picking narration is tricky because it's a, a combination of a lot of things you want, again, the tone to be right, but you also don't want to pass up someone like Jamie Foxx, even if they're not maybe exactly what you wanted because they are such a big name. They're going to draw a lot of people in to watch the documentary. So there's that kind of balance. And in, in our case, Jamie was everything because he has the name and I thought he did an excellent job with, you know, the narration. So, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the things that you don't think that a lot of thought goes into it. We spent, you know, days and days and weeks trying to figure out who um, would be a great voice. And funny, I, I think I told you this, Sean, that another former uh, Brown track alum to be Diggs, who's an actor now, a really great actor was in Hamilton. Now is in Snowpiercer. Like we wanted, I, he was the one person who I thought would have been great for, for the narration. So um, that would have been a cool Brown connection, but that didn't end up working out. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's always a lot of names thrown out. It's fun to kind of go through all those. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for joining us for our first Community Open Competition segment. And uh, we'll have to have you on the show at some point in time as well, once you uh, start doing your thing for real, for real. Really appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> Todd, thanks so much. Let's keep talking about this thing. So I know the, the Robin thing is out and, and a lot of us have seen it. Do you think you were successful in really showcasing uh, the inner workings of Dennis Robin to the world? Well, we, you know, we tried <laughs> and I think we did, you know, it's really hard too with <laughs> when you get into documentary is length becomes a thing because nowadays what's great is, you know, with streaming services, a lot of, a lot of times now, I mean, you, you saw the, the last dance thing is 10 hours and the OJ Simpson thing, I think was six or eight hours. And so we are getting a lot of time, you know, I had 30 for 30 still does these hour, hour and a half, two hour chunks. And we were sort of, we were actually given, I think, an hour and a half chunk. And then it, they saw how much stuff that we had. So it, it got extended to two hours. Um, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Someone's so nuanced as Dennis. And he doesn't, that seems like a crazy thing to say about Dennis Rodman, that he's nuanced. But I think his life, um, you know, there was a lot going on beneath the surface that needed to be uncovered. And doing that in, you know, 102 minutes is really hard. So... I thought that we, you know, all the things that I really want to touch on with his life that I thought were important um, for people to know and understand, I think we did get out there, you know, whether or not that could have been done better in three hours in a doc series, you know, maybe. Um, but, you know, I'm proud of, of, of what we kind of got out there. I love that, man. You did a great job. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed it also. And, um, I was a Dennis Rodman fan before I saw it. And when I saw it, I saw so many things that I did not know about. So kudos to you. you. You really did a good job. One of my questions was when you're interviewing um, all these greats or, or these elite uh, players or people, you know, Rodman, and then you, you interviewed Phil Jackson and then uh, Michael Jordan. 
in your eyes, what's the difference between great and elite? Like what's the, what's the, the, what separates them, the greats from the elites? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, as an example, I don't think you can leave a conversation with that man and not understand why he was an elite coach. I mean, in just a lot of ways. I mean, just speaking with him, he's he's so intelligent. He's so introspective. Um, hearing him talk about basketball, obviously, is it, it was really cool interviewing him, just talking basketball with him for a while. So, you know, I don't I don't know what makes Phil Jackson, you know, great and not just good, but um, you know, it is interesting when you get to interview these people. You sort of see like, oh, this is this is like the best coach that's ever coached in the NBA. And I know why, because he's so highly intelligent and he gets basketball and he gets relationships um, and he's a thoughtful human being and, and all those things. So it becomes pretty evident when you walk in a room and you sit down with someone for an hour and have a discussion with them, you know, why they're so good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Todd, so I don't know if you watched The Last Dance. I mean, I've been watching it literally every Sunday for the last couple of weeks because that's become my like my go-to treat for the week. <laughs> my wife appreciates me for that, and I appreciate her for letting me do it. But uh, the finale is actually this uh, this Sunday night, and I don't know if you've seen it or not. But you know, in in The Last Dance, it shows Madonna and Carmen Electra and their relationship with Rodman. We didn't really see a lot of that in your 30 for 30. So it wasn't just a conflict of interest. Was it scheduling? Um, what was the backstory behind that for you guys? Well, the Carmen Electra thing is kind of interesting because that, you know, I talked about the process a little bit earlier and you know, that when you start, you put a bunch of names on the list and, and you see who wants to do an interview. And then as you go along, you, you start to realize what's actually important and I think it was a, a kind of a combination of things with like Carmen Electra where we reached out to her really early in the process and said, Hey, we were doing a Dennis Rodman 30 for 30. You guys obviously had a relationship, a pretty tumultuous, but interesting relationship. Um, you know, in the 90, late nineties, early two thousands, we'd love to like interview about it, interview you about it. And I think the response from like her people was sort of like, ah, you know, she's talked a lot about Dennis before. It's, it's never, she never comes talking about that stuff and it's always you know it was kind of a no it was a little bit of a no or a we'll see and we didn't hear from them for a while so then we just you know kept producing the documentary as as that's what happens when one person says no and you kind of move on and you keep going and later by the maybe a couple months before we were finished they reached back out and said hey you know Carmen sort of had a little bit of a change of you know a change of thought and she, she would do it if you guys want her. But what had happened at that point is knowing we didn't have Carmen, you put together a certain, you know, product based around what you have. And we kind of realized that the Carmen piece of our documentary just wasn't as important as we thought it was going to be when we started. Um, there were just, and you have to make those decisions so often in a documentary where you literally have to choose between, okay, we have this two minute scene with him and his mom talking about their relationship or do you talk about how Carmen Electra was having sex with Dennis in the backseat of a limousine? And so, you know, like, yes, that's a great story and people would talk about it. And yes, that is somewhat, I guess, revealing about who Dennis is, but you have to make these hard decisions about what's more important. And, you know, we just got to a point with someone like Carmen where that chunk of his life 
it actually just ended up being like a two sentence Jamie Foxx track explaining kind of the transition from the end of the Chicago days to, you know, his kind of hard drinking days post career. So we skipped over a lot of, we skipped over his Los Angeles um, stint. We skipped over a little bit his um, Dallas Mavericks stint and we skipped over a lot of the kind of early two thousands Dennis with Carmen. So um, long answer, but you know, it, it, she she just wasn't relevant to our documentary by the time that she wanted to do it. And then in terms of Madonna, we didn't, we never even got in contact with her. Um, I think we reached out to some agents and just didn't really hear back. Um, I don't know if she, I don't know if she's interviewed in the last dance as like a new interview though. They may have used old clips of her being interviewed. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, like, old, yeah, yeah exactly. I don't, I don't think she's, I think she's beyond talking about kind of the dentist thing anymore. Um, but we did actually, what's funny is um, we had a gag. It got cut out of the documentary, but for a while we had a gag where um, my wife, who I got to play, because she's blonde and kind of the same height as Madonna. So we had this gag where my wife gets out of like a G-Wagon and walks through the bowels of like a studio and it's from behind her. So you can't see her face and the voiceover, Jamie Foxx is saying something like, well, we've heard all this stuff stuff about Dennis's relationship with Madonna from Dennis and his teammates and now it's time to hear it from like the mouth of Madonna and then we like turn around and cut away and the joke was you know of course we didn't get Madonna to do an interview we didn't even get Greg Popovich who was the coach of the Spurs when Dennis played um, who didn't want to be interviewed for it so you know my wife for a while was in the dock but we ended up kind of cutting that little chunk out but uh, that was pretty that's hilarious <laughs> that's pretty cool so you interviewed so many people. Um, what was it like interviewing MJ? It was cool. It was, it was, you know, what's interesting about certain interviews with, I've been in the room with LeBron when he's been interviewed because I worked with like Rachel Nichols for a while on stuff where she would interview LeBron and, and um, a lot. Um, and I would sort of produce those interviews. And then, um, you know, someone like Jordan, it's so fast you know, you sit down, the person, their person who's handling them is there to tell you, okay, you got 12 minutes to interview them. So get out everything. And then by the time you sit down in your seat, they're saying, oh, you got 11 minutes and 12 seconds, you better go. Um, so it's a little bit nerve wracking because you just, you don't have time to really enjoy that you're sitting across from Michael Jordan because I wanted to get so much content in the kind of short amount of time that we had with him. Um, but I mean, it was awesome. I mean, he was a childhood hero of mine, obviously, as he was for many people who grew up in that era and just sitting across from him and talking basketball was a massive thrill for me. Um, and he was super cool. And he was really, he was his interview was actually, and I think he had probably already done the last dance interview. So I think he was used to kind of opening up about all these all these topics. So it was easier for him than if he hadn't done the last dance interviews yet. Um, so yeah, it was, it was incredible and it was, it was fast, but the funny thing too, is you get this short amount of time and then he kind of just sat after and just kind of like chatted with us and was asking about Dennis. And that was probably the coolest part. It was just, you know, just chatting after the interview with MJ for a few minutes. And even though I wanted that time for the, for the interview to actually ask him questions for the doc, it was you know, cooler just to have that alone time with him to, to just talk. So it was really cool. That's incredible. No big deal. You know, talking to MJ. <laughs> <laughs> we're, just, we're just hanging out. 
So literally, I mean, the last dance, you know, it's 10 episodes. The entire world's watching. It's, it's broken all these records for, you know, people watching it and, and, and views. Has it brought more attention to your 30 for 30? Yeah, a ton, actually, which is, it's been awesome. I mean, you know, a lot of people have been sending me sort of tweets of people saying like, oh, I don't, I didn't even know before The Last Dance that there was a Dennis Rodman documentary. And, um, you know, because of The Last Dance, I, I heard it was and I watched it. And I think it got a lot more eyes because of The Last Dance, which is really, really cool. Um, and I think ESPN actually did a great job. I don't know if it was like episode six or seven of The Last Dance. Um, focused on Rodman. So I think they promoted the 30 for 30 saying, you know, if you want more, cause again, you know, it, it's 10 hours, but there's so much that went on with that team and that season so much that uh, Brian Hare wanted to, or uh, Jason Hare, I'm sorry, wanted to cover in that doc. So the Rodman section is pretty short. So I think they kind of sent people to the, the 30 for 30 that I did um, for people who wanted kind of more on Dennis. So I think a ton of more eyes saw it because of that, which was really, really cool. Yeah. All right, last Dennis question. So remind me, the Kim Jong-un relationship between him and Rodman, uh, you guys touched on it a little bit in, in the documentary, but what, what were your thoughts on how that even happened? And, and you know, it was so weird. Like, what, what were your thoughts on that relationship with him? Yeah, I mean, it was a hard thing to fit into the doc because it, it was just this random kind of plop on at the end of his career that sort of happened um, after everything. Um, so f- the flow of the doc, it was just hard to fit it in, and, and we got it in. But um, I think I think for us, what we wanted to do with the Kim Jong-un stuff was to say, hey, this wasn't – like, Dennis Rodman is not a guy who just, like, woke up one morning and was like, hey, I'm going to befriend um, this sort of evil dictator in, in North Korea. There was a reason that he did that, and I would argue, and I think the doc sort of argues that – He's a guy who needed acceptance, who needed love, who sometimes acted out in these interesting, strange ways because he he, he sort of sought this acceptance at any cost. I mean, I think Kim Jong-un could have been anyone. And if he felt like this guy who's power, who Dennis saw as powerful likes me, I think that was enough for Dennis. I don't think – and that's what Dennis kept saying over and over in all these sort of news interviews is like, I don't know, he's my friend. And people would kill Dennis for saying that because – you know, the follow-up would obviously be, well, you know, he tortures his people and, you know, so on and so forth. He's not the greatest guy just because, you know, you can, why, why would you consider him a friend? And I think Dennis's response is just, he's nice to me and we have a relationship and that's enough for me. And I think that just speaks to who Dennis was. I think Dennis, even at that point in his life, he had gone through so much trauma and had lost so many friends and, you know, post NBA career. I think that sort of Dennis Rodman as a super famous, important person started to like dwindle a little bit. And I think, you know, partially it was getting back in the spotlight. And I truly do believe part, part of it was just this man, whoever he was, was nice to Dennis and, you know, respected what Dennis did with the bulls back. then, And that was enough for Dennis. Um, you know, to, to North Korea and meet with him and, um, and sort of it led to that situation, obviously. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, in the doc, we had people say that without Dennis Rodman, maybe the summit with um, he and Trump never happens. And, and I don't, I don't think that that's wrong. I mean, you can obviously argue if it, especially now, if that actually helped anything, mm-hmm. but 
I think it's fair to argue that without Dennis Rodman, maybe that summit doesn't happen, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, literally, your, your 3 for 3 was incredible. I, I was a Bulls fan um, in New York, you know, growing up, and my uncle used to get, get mad at me because I would cheer for MJ and he'd cheer for the, the Knicks. But l- watching your documentary just reminded me about how awesome that team was and how integral his part was on that team. And I think you did a yeah. great job. Um, you were did a fantastic job on doing that. Last question before the break. Um, so you're a Cavs fan, as you said earlier, correct? Yeah. Yep. Are Are you a Laker fan? Because you're also in LA right now. So I'm just I'm just want to get this out the way before I ask my next question. <laughs> uh, you know, so I have a. Well, this is weird to say. Not that I have a history with LeBron, but when I was in high school, LeBron was in high school in Northeast Ohio. So I actually saw him play when he was a freshman in high school. I remember going out with a good friend of mine to watch him um, in like a regional final game. So I, I sort of feel like I, 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 I did it, but I like knew LeBron from the beginning and before all the hype. Like I saw him play when he was, you know, 15 and like I knew LeBron before everyone else, which is, you know, maybe partially true because I was in Ohio and got to see him play at such a young age. But obviously he was on all the, you know, high on all the recruiting lists. So it's not like I discovered him, but my point being, I've always, you know, loved LeBron, followed his career, love that he's from Northeast Ohio and sort of reps Northeast Ohio. So I've always been a huge fan of his, even when he left Cleveland. Um, So now obviously as a Laker, they're probably my second team, not because I live in LA, but but because I'm a big LeBron fan and and I love him. So yeah, we're, we're kind of we're kind of the same. <laughs> I'm a LeBron fan too, and my wife, as you know, is from Ohio. So um, you know, we we kind of follow him wherever he goes. Whatever. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nick fans. <laughs> Last question, Todd. So so players like Durant, um, you know, there there are a lot of players right now who are doing their own production companies for their own documentaries. Um, what are, what are your thoughts on these players? Do you think that it's better for you know, your profession to kind of go in there and do them for them or the players themselves doing their own documentaries moving forward? What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's a great debate to be had. I mean, I think, I I think that things like, you know, um, uninterrupted, which is LeBron's sort of production company. I think those things are good for a lot in a lot of ways. I think they're really good in a lot of ways. I think 20 years ago, if an athlete was involved in some sort of controversy, um, and wanted to get his side out, it was pretty hard. Um, and it was just the sort of media who got to kind of tell their story. Now, if something happens to any athlete, they could call up Maverick Carter or LeBron and say, hey, I want to like put out this thing that sort of explains my side of the story. And I think that's really important. It's giving athletes voices. Um, and I think that's great. I think when you start to get into to documentary, though, and, and big um, definitive documentaries, I think it, it's a little problematic. I mean, I don't think you want, it, it's like what I was saying before. I mean, what I find so fulfilling about my job and what I think the value is in my job is leaving behind these documents that explain who someone is. And, you know, for better or worse, I left behind uh, Dennis Rodman, I think was, you know, for me, it was the important stuff and it was an unbiased view. of. Den- I didn't know Dennis before I went into this, was a Bulls fan, but I just looked at his story and said, who is this person and tried to put out a thing that explained that. I, I don't think that process can really happen if, you know, Kevin Durant's directing a documentary about himself. 
Um, but I, I think there's a place for it, though. I think if I think if Kevin Durant was doing a documentary about one season um, with the Nets and it was sort of a follow doc, um, I, I think he can have a hand in that. I just think if you're doing a two-hour definitive documentary on controversies and what Durant went through and disputes with teammates and all this stuff and he's in the edit room sort of picking and choosing sound bites. I, I don't necessarily think that's hugely valuable to documentary um, and can be a little problematic, but so it's, so it's hard. I, I'm it, it, it's, I think what those companies do is great because it is giving athletes a voice that they probably didn't have. And social media just does that too, which is great um, now. But I do think when you get into docs, it's, it's a little, a little more complicated. Awesome. We're going to take a quick commercial break and right back with more from Todd Capistassi, seven-time Emmy Award winner, director, producer, and editor by After These Messages. What's going on, folks? We're still here to be more today's show, episode 11, and I told you it was going to be a good one. We're here in the building with my friend, my old teammate, high jumper, heps jumper, 6'4 in the high jump, and now seven-time Emmy Award winning director, producer, and editor, Todd Capistassi. Todd, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Um, we got to talk about your personal life a little bit, just for a second. I know you're married to Tara Lipinski. Uh, for those who don't know, Tara Lipinski is an American figure skater, uh, youngest one to win gold, uh, in 1998. And she is phenomenal. Um, how'd you guys meet? You told me, but I kind of want you to share this story with the rest of the world right now. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty crazy story. Um, my first, it was actually my first trip to the sports Emmys, which, you know, for someone in my, in, in, in our business, we're working in uh, uh, the sort of short-term goal, I suppose, for me is to, like, get nominated for a sports Emmy. It's always, like, a nice notch on, on you know, um, on your belt if you kind of get an Emmy nomination. And I wanted to kind of keep working from there. So it was, like, a big moment for me, um, getting nominated for a sports Emmy. And I it was the first year that I won, and... I go up on stage to accept the award and Tara was the person that was presenting the award. So she physically handed me a statue, um, took it from her. We didn't talk obviously, but I took it from her, you know, gave my speech and went down. And then um, this is crazy that my mom is involved in this and kind of sad, but I went home after the sports Emmys and I'm sort of bragging to my mom, you know, I'm, I'm feeling good about myself. I just won a couple Emmys at the sports Emmys. I was like, yeah, mom, I, you know, you know, Tara Lipinski presented an award and, and, you know, I think Shaq actually presented one of my awards, but I'm kind of listing all these people and kind of bragging to my mom. She, she, oh, love Tara. Um, I think your aunt, um, you know, works with her. They're sort of friendly. And this is something that I had no idea that they knew each other. So of course, immediately I send my aunt an email saying you're holding out on me, you know, Tara Lipinski and you've never tried to set me up. So, um, so my aunt, you know, it's nice enough to, to send a group email to Tara and I saying, hey, you guys kind of met at the Emmys. Um, you're both in L.A. You guys should, you know, have a drink sometime. So we had a drink and then seven months later we were engaged. So it was a, it's a pretty cool oh, story. Wow. Ah. Yeah. That's incredible. That's an awesome story. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So on this show, uh, again, our hashtag or our motto is Be More Today. Um, and we asked everybody who comes on the show what the phrase be more today means to them. So in your own words, sir, what do you think the phrase be more today means to you? Oh, that's a tough one. And the namesake of the book and the, the brand. Um, you know, I think 
I guess what that means to me is if you think about it in a, in a sort of micro sense, I think a lot of people think about what can I do more today to improve the thing, the specific thing that I'm working towards. So for me, it would be, Oh, someday I want to direct a, a feature film. And so, you know, is being more doing more towards that end. And I, I guess I would argue that I don't think it is. I think being to me being more means, you know, what else outside of that one dream that I focus on every day, can I be better in? And there's so many things in my life. I feel like, uh, you know, maybe sometimes because I have this one specific sort of dream I'm working, working towards or goal. Um, and I think that's wrong. And I think I try to check myself a lot and saying, okay, of course you have these goals that every day you think about and you want so badly, but there's a lot of other things in life that you can be better at. Be a better husband. I can be, you know, a better child to my parents. Um, I can be healthier. Um, so there are a lot of things I think. So to answer your question, I think be more to me is just being more, you know, the, I guess the macro in the macro sense is what can I do to not just be a better filmmaker or achieve my dream, but just be a better person in general. Awesome. Another, another quick question. Um, what do you wish someone would have shared with you when you were 18? That's a tough one. I, you know what, for me, I think, and I've, I've talked about this, I feel like a lot in, in my experience at Brown and then maybe early on in ESPN. And that is, I, I just had this, I had these kind of blinders on in terms of what I wanted. And it was a, it was a, a slow progression to, you know, 10 years after I, I started ESPN to, to, to do a 30 for 30. So that it took me a while to sort of get to that, you know, one of those goals. Um, and it was, it was hard and difficult. And I was, I, I maybe was too focused at, at certain, at certain times. I think if someone would have at 18 said to me, Hey Todd, like you, you'll, you'll eventually get there. And if you work hard, it's going to happen, but you know, open your eyes occasionally and travel and you can take a month off and, you know, understand how the world works a little better than you do. I think I went to Brown I put my head in the sand. I studied really hard. I got this job at ESPN. I wanted to do a 30 for 30. I, I, you know, I dug in and I put in that work for all these years. And I think I, I didn't like lift my head up to breathe any fresh air a lot. And I think if someone would have told me at 18, dude, you have to do that. You have to understand how the world works. Go travel somewhere. Don't take yourself so seriously. Sometimes maybe a project you're working on that you think is a hundred percent you know, means everything, maybe make that 90 or 80%. Um, I actually think I would have been better at my job if I would have done that, if I would have taken myself and the work a little less seriously, which is a weird thing to say, because you obviously want to, if you love something, you want to work really hard and take it seriously. But I think someone would have told me at 18, you'll be good, just relax a little bit, vacation, <laughs> see the world, travel, people, create more relationships, enjoy those relationships, enjoy your job. Um, obviously the cliche of enjoying the journey, I would hate to say that, but you know, that it, it's true. It's a cliche for a reason. I probably didn't enjoy the, the the journey as much as I should have at certain times. So I wish someone would have told me that. Okay. All right. That's, 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 that's good advice. Um, another question I have, um, since you have made it to the top, you have had this laser like focus what kind of time management tips would you, would you give a person that's, that's just trying to pull it all together? 
man, that's tough too. Cause I, I think I struggle with that. I mean, I'm still a work in progress as we all are. And I think it's hard, especially nowadays when there's so much going on to, to focus on, on one thing and manage, manage your time. Um, I, this is a really simple thing. I think for me, because I can get a little scatterbrained in terms of things I'm working on at one time. I just think like writing down, I do this daily. I open up, it's again, very simple and this isn't rocket science, but I open an email, I can open a Gmail window and I write down everything that I'm hoping to accomplish. Even if it's like, you know, at lunch doing, you know, a chore or something or, you know, well, I got to take out the garbage. I literally write down like everything accomplished that day um and sometimes i don't get to all of it but it's for me visualizing what i want to do is really helpful and i found that to be you know for a while i had a cork board at my old house where i i had lists of things that i wanted to accomplish i think just seeing stuff really helps me um it helps me manage my time um so again that's not a that's not going to change anyone's life that advice but it, it helps me every day to sort of see what i want to do and and kind of check it off the list because mm-hmm. I, I think you do need i actually heard this on a master class just about feeling like you you get a win every day or accomplish something every day and i think that is really important i think if you go through a whole day and you just feel like you didn't get to everything you wanted to um you know you're going to be a little discouraged the next day so i think physically crossing things off a list that you've accomplished even if it's like a really simple task is is, is important Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100 um, percent. Now I want to ask you, what what's one thing on your bucket list that you'd like to share? On my bucket list? Yeah. Like in terms of, you know, professional goals or anything? Anything. It could, it could be professional. I mean, you did mention, you know, um, direct a feature film, if, if that's it. But it could be it's wide open. You take it wherever you want to go. Yeah. I mean, I think professionally it's, it's that I've always, since I've been entered Brown, just directing my own, my own feature that probably that I write too would be kind of a bucket list thing that I'd love to check off. No matter if no one sees it and I'm the only one sitting in the theater that I rented, that's fine. Um, just kind of doing that is important to me and that's sort of bucket list thing. Um, I also want to go to Egypt. I don't know if that's a good bucket list thing. Um, I've I've gotten to travel a lot because my wife has a a big travel bug and she's been awesome in sort of um, exposing me to a lot of different places that I hadn't seen. So I've traveled a ton in the last couple of years. And so I have that bug now too. So seeing a place like Egypt, I'd love to go to Israel. There are a lot of places that I'd love to, to visit. Yeah, me too. Let's go together, Todd. Me, you, Tara, Pi. <laughs> Let's make it work. So, Todd, you know, you, you it, and yeah. I, yeah, man, you and I, um, so when we met, uh, I had, I was injured. I had torn my meniscus. I don't know if you remember this at all. Um, I was, I just had surgery, actually, and you kind of saw me go through a lot of uh, the rehab for my knee and trying to get back onto the track and you know i remember literally you know watching you guys and feeling bad as your captain that i was kind of hurt um but recognize that i had to keep pushing keep pushing and you mentioned writing down goals and i remember at that time you know with our kofi and rothenberg who's i still think one of the best coaches um in the northeast if not you know on the eastern on the east coast uh i used to write down all my my goals for a track all the time i used to write down the school record on my shoes uh, before meets because I wanted to jump that far every single meet. And I would literally um, 
in the pit, like mark off where I wanted to land uh, for triple jump or, or what have you. And I think all those those things continue to stay with me as I move forward in life from goals to even this book that I wrote. As you know, I wrote this book called Be More Today, A 40 Guide to a Better Version of You. And in the book, we write down our steps to greatness, it's basically what you just talked about, things you want to start doing, stop doing, and goals for your life. But it's basically just seeing it, just actually seeing these things and holding yourself accountable to it every day, I think, like you said, makes a big difference. Um, so what are, or what is one thing that you wanted to or have already started to do uh, in 2020? Well, it's interesting. And I think a lot of people have probably had this experience where the, the coronavirus and the situations that have, you know, that have happened because of that and the way people are living now and relationships are changing, um, I think they've exposed certain things that you want to do better. Um, and one of those things actually is my relationship with my parents, which I have an amazing relationship with my parents. Um, and they're super cool people. They're still really active. They travel. So they're not, you know, sitting by the phone every day waiting for me to call. But I think just going through this sort of pandemic um, has opened my eyes to the relationship I want to have a better relationship that I want to have with them just talking just talking more because I love my parents and you know I'm probably like a lot of people out there where when I have a free second I call them and we talk for a few minutes and that's it and then maybe a week later I'll have another minute and it's it's not the it's not the sort of frequency or length that it should be um and they wouldn't they wouldn't think anything of it they wouldn't say oh my son never calls me it's not like that we have again good relationship but I think one thing I want to work on in 2020 is just you know valuing that relationship as much as it, it should be valued and not taking it for granted because you know obviously it's cliche but they're not going to be around for forever and I think this pandemic having them stuck in a in a house that's you know away from me has just pointed that out that you know life is precious and I should take advantage of that relationship as much as I can so one thing for 2020 is just increase the frequency of talking to my parents, which is a really simple thing, but I think, um, I think it's important. So. Absolutely. What's one thing you want to stop doing this year? It's a good question. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I went, I went two months without drinking, um, fairly recently, two or three months, and I'm not a huge drinker, but just one of those things with, for physical fitness and just general health, I thought it'd be fun to, to try to stop doing. Um, and I would love to try to stop doing that again at some point. Um, I also think, you know, in terms of my like emotional well being and mental state, I think just thinking negatively, um, which I know was a basic thing, but I think I do have think about the failures a lot. I think of too much about like where I, where I haven't gotten yet, where I want to go. Um, and I think that can be a hindrance to, to sort of goals that I have and just my general state of being every day. So, you know, I think in 2020, it'd be great to, to try to block out and find ways to block out a lot of the, the negative thoughts that I have about my career, and, um, where I'm trying to go and any things that I see as failures that probably actually aren't. Yeah. And then just one goal that you may have, short-term goal for, for 2020 or the rest of 2020. Yeah, one thing I think, you know, as a, as a block to the bigger goal of eventually, you know, directing and writing a, a feature film is doing a short. 
Um, and I've had time now in the pandemic, I'm editing something, but I've also had some free time to start writing down ideas of short films that I'd want to do just kind of in, independently produced, get a bunch of friends together that are in an industry who would want to work with me on something fun and short, um, you know, write like a, a 15 to 20 minute short and execute it. Um, it's something that I've always thought about for years and years. It's one of those things I'm sure everyone has them in, in their business. Like, ah, oh, like I'm working on a short film or I'm going to do this at some point and you just never do it. Um, and you just saying you're doing it and you don't. So in 2020, that's something that, you know, I want, I want you three to keep me accountable on that in 2020. I will have done that hopefully. Um, right. so send me an email in a couple months and see how my, my, uh, you know, my progress is on that because I really do want to do that and want to stop talking about it. And I think it is important for my progression as a creative person to, to do that and take that step. So, uh, yeah, to direct a, write and direct and kind of execute a short film in the next, you know, year is a, is a short term goal. Okay. Um, any, any final tips, uh, you want to share with any up and coming producers or directors? Yeah, I would just say, And I think I keep coming back to this and people have different personalities. And I think for me in, in Los Angeles, you know, I live in Los Angeles and it's, there's producers and directors and movers and shakers and actors and agents. And that's like, not, that's not my personality. I'm just like, not the guy who's going to like walk up to an agent, be the cool guy and like mix in those crowds and make those relationships. I'm just a little more subtle, quiet. I just like being in my room and sort of being creative um, and I don't think a lot of times that lends itself to, you know, necessarily being hugely successful in, or it's harder. There, it's just harder to have, uh, I think, the personality that I have maybe and to succeed in, in the business. And it's just been a challenge. But I guess the, the tip would be don't try to be something you're not. I mean, I think I, it took me, again, it took me a while. I worked for a long time at ESPN and grinded away. But that one goal of, you know, 30 for 30 ESPN. I, I did get there actually. And I, I didn't get there, you know, going to film school or the things that I thought I had to do that I was a little bit intimidated to do. Um, and I just did it sort of my way. So I think, and people say this all the time about your path, obviously all paths are different. You don't have to follow, you know, one specific path of, you know, to get where you want to get. Um, but I would just reiterate that, that you don't have to, and don't fight who you are. Um, because I think if I would have tried to do things, that I actually think if I would have went to film school um, or just moved to LA when I was 22 years old and tried to get into the film industry, I think I would have failed <clears throat> because I think I would have been intimidated. I would have fell out of my place. I wouldn't have, the creativity I think that I've shown in this business, I think was a result of, of sort of the path that I took um, and the confidence that I built up over all these years. Um, and so, yeah, I would just, don't fight who you are. And if you feel like who you are doesn't fit exactly what your, you know, your field is or the goal that you're trying to get, don't let that discourage you because, you know, all kinds of people find all kinds of ways towards success and the things that they want to do. It's good advice. Good advice. Where can people find and follow your success? So I, I'm not really on Twitter. I have a Twitter handle, but I don't really go on it. But on Instagram, I, I tend to post more. And that's at Todd Cap, T-O-D-D-K-A-P. Gotcha. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Todd, 
Thank you so, 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 so much for being on the show, man. I mean, you you gave how much to me, but honestly, I'm super impressed by you. Uh, you've done so many great things, and I'm proud of you, man. It's it's just I, I'm just proud of you. I mean, you you are not the kind of person, and I remember correctly from from school, um, to be boastful or brag about what you've been doing, but what you have done and accomplished is is incredible. And I look forward to more films from you. And we're going to hold you accountable to it. We'll have to have you back on the show. Talk about your short film very, very soon. So um, thank you so much for joining us. Really, well, no, th- Thanks for having me, Sean. And like I said at the beginning, it's just, I- I'm so glad. I'm so happy to do this because it does feel like a, a, a fun full circle thing with you and I. Because you were, you know, I was starting, I think, my journey as an adult when I met you at 18. And was intimidated by school and scared. And you were such a, an important you were an, uh, an influence and kind of a pillar in my college, that first college year I had, because you were so stable, you were someone to look up to. Um, and I, I did value back then just, you know, our, our small relationship that we had. And I was just a little freshman and you were, um, you know, you were such a great leader and, um, and the book and everything. It just, it, it's, it's not a surprise to me too, that you wrote a book, um, you know, motivating people to succeed. So, um, congratulations to you too. I'm so happy to be on, on the show with you. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. And uh, if you guys haven't checked him out, he has many, many shows and films online, but definitely check out Robin 30 for 30 and Run. I watched both of those and they were incredible. They will inspire you as well. Todd Capasasi, again, seven-time Emmy Award-winning director, producer, and editor. And episode 11 is in the books. For those of you who liked our show, please check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Again, our website is bemoretoday.com. That's bemoretoday.com. You can check us there for our music, uh, the book, the podcast information. Also, subscribe to our YouTube page for our workouts. And, of course, the Be More Today show can be found on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, and Google Play. We also have a contribution page right now. So if you want to give us some funds or just give some support for the show, we gladly appreciate that to keep the show going. We really, really appreciate it. And for any thoughts or if you have any ideas for uh, questions for the show or anyone that you want to see on the show, you can email us at be more the number two day at gmail.com. Don't forget our quote from today from Wilma Rudolph. Never underestimate the power of dreams and influence of the human spirit. We are all the same in this notion. The potential for greatness lives within each of us. Graduates, congratulations. And as always, have a good day. Have a good night. Have a great life. Let's continue to take the steps to greatness to be the best version of you. Peace! Living life with nothing to prove. I'm gonna be a better version of me.